Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. The topic of today's episode is the Israel-Palestine conflict. I've avoided discussing Israel on this podcast for two reasons. First, because I didn't know enough to feel qualified weighing in on it. And second, because it may literally be the most radioactive topic on planet Earth. A tiny mistake or misplaced word can cause a level of backlash that I just don't want to deal with. But two things have changed over the past few months. First, I've crossed some threshold where I've studied the issue enough to feel comfortable speaking about it. And also, I went to Israel for 10 days on a government-sponsored press trip with a group of journalists. We spoke to Israeli journalists, police officers, politicians, a Supreme Court justice, military personnel, and everyday citizens. We went to Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, the borders with Gaza, Lebanon, and Syria, and many other places. Now, it goes without saying that this trip was structured so as to give us a favorable impression of Israel. It was paid for by the Israeli government, so some would call this a propaganda trip. But the word propaganda is an umbrella term. It covers everything from North Korea creating fake supermarkets full of food to show the outside world while their children starve by the thousands, to the subtle choice of one word over another, enhanced interrogation instead of torture, or affirmative action instead of racial discrimination. Almost every op-ed you read has a perspective to offer that's not impartial. Just the choice of which facts to include and which to leave out is a kind of persuasion tactic that could be called propaganda. I had Renee DeResta on this show a while back, and she reminded me that the original meaning of propaganda was not even a pejorative. Propaganda just referred to any material meant to persuade you of a political viewpoint. By that standard, most of what we read every day is propaganda. So where did this Israel trip fall on the spectrum of propaganda? Well, I can honestly say it was nowhere near the North Korea end of that spectrum. For one thing, there was no limits on what we could ask anybody. We could ask a politician or a Supreme Court justice, why are you guys oppressing the Palestinians in the West Bank? And sometimes we could even record their answers. That's not something you could do on a press trip in North Korea or in the Soviet Union. On the other hand, the Israeli government wouldn't sponsor these trips if they didn't believe we'd come away with a more positive perception of the country. Otherwise, there'd be no point. So was the trip structured so as to deliver the Israeli perspective on the conflict? Yes, and consciously so. But calling it propaganda calls to mind a level of lying and spinning and censorship that just wasn't there. Ultimately, I think the word propaganda should be reserved for the really bad cases, or else anything meant to persuade you of a viewpoint becomes propaganda, and the word loses all its potency. In any event, after my trip to Israel, I felt ready to weigh in on this topic publicly, and I want to do that in two ways. First, I want this podcast to serve as an introduction to the basic historical facts of the Israel-Palestine conflict from roughly 1880 until the present. And the reason I want to do this is because I've noticed an astonishing level of ignorance around these basic facts. When I was a student at Columbia, 
I knew kids that seemed to be very moved emotionally by the plight of the Palestinians in the West Bank, but could not tell you when or how British Palestine was partitioned, when or how Israel was founded, how and why many Jewish settlers ended up there in the first place, nor could they tell you even basic facts about the major wars that had been fought since 1948. So I want the first part of this podcast to serve as an introduction to these basic historical facts. If you're well-versed on this topic, then you may want to skip the beginning. But on the other hand, there's still quite a bit of interesting material there. The rest of this podcast is about the ethics and the current politics of the conflict. Who is in the right and who is in the wrong? Is Israel an apartheid state that's oppressing a minority out of pure bigotry? Is it, is it a colonialist, expansionist state motivated by religious belief? Or is it an embattled and legitimate nation state surrounded by enemies that wants only to survive? These are the questions that people struggle with. And I've brought in Dr. Benny Morris to help me answer them. Now, Benny Morris has a unique vantage point on this issue. On the one hand, he is an Israeli Jew. And in recent years, he has become a major defender of Israel against global condemnation. On the other hand, he's probably done more than almost anyone you could name to discover and publicize Israel's historical war crimes. He refused to serve in the occupied West Bank and was arrested as a result. His academic work on Israel is cited favorably by people like Noam Chomsky, who are all the way on the other side of the issue. And he was at one point shunned by the Israeli academic community for being, in essence, a traitor to his people. He's one of the few people who can really claim to have battle scars from both sides of this debate. So I thought he'd be a good person to help me weave through the complexities of the topic. I have a lot of admiration for Benny Morris, and I hope you find him as illuminating as I did. So without further ado, Dr. Benny Morris. Dr. Benny Morris, thanks so much for coming on my show. So before we get into your work on the history of the Zionist Arab conflict or the Israel-Palestine conflict, I want to get a little bit of information on who you are so my audience can get to know you if, if they don't. You're someone who has been identified in the past as left-wing and shunned by the Israeli academy for uncovering many of the war crimes against Palestinians. And if I have this right, you also refused to serve in occupied territories and were, were arrested as a result. And, uh, but you know, more recently, you've also been called right-wing and criticized for you know, defending some of Israel's more controversial actions. So my first question is, is kind of a two-part question. How did you come to uh, be a historian and how do you identify politically? I'm not too sure how I became an historian. As a youth, I liked to read books about history. And uh, when I went to university, uh, that was an obvious choice, uh, studying history and also philosophy. Here they do two majors usually. Um, and I just went on from there to do after a BA, a PhD in history, because that's what I felt comfortable doing. And afterwards, I started writing books. <laughs> That's basically what happened. And what was the second part of the question? And how do you identify politically or how have you identified politically throughout your life? I think I've always been on the left. I believe in, you know, liberal democratic values, 
and uh, I've always voted for left-wing parties, left center-left parties. And even though some people have accused me of becoming a right-winger, I've never been a right-winger. But uh, I did find fault after I, I did find fault um, with the behavior of the Palestinians. And if you do that, you're immediately branded a, a right-winger by some circles. Mm. Okay, so. I want the first part of this conversation to serve as a basically a summary of the history of the conflict for people that may not know all that much about how the whole thing started. So if you're deeply knowledgeable about this, this may just all be sort of boring refresher, but I kind of want to get some of those basic facts on the table and there's no one better to do that with than you. So let's start at 1880. Who was living in the place we now call Israel and how many were there and what was the political entity they were living under? Well, in 1880 or 1881 or two, when Zionism began, the land of Israel or Palestine as it was called by by um, most Christians, was part of the Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, and uh, was inhabited, the area between more or less the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, uh, was inhabited by something um, like 500,000 Arabs and um, 20, 30,000 Jews. Most of the Arabs, 90% of the Arabs were Muslims, about 10% of them were Christians. So it's often said that in Ottoman times, Jews and Arabs lived in harmony. To what extent is that true? Well, it, it's a half-truth. Jews lived as a subordinate religious minority in the Muslim empire. And as long as they accepted their subordination, there was no trouble. When Jews began to assert, assert themselves uh, this is when Muslims uh, resented it, and um, this caused uh, strife eventually. But but Christians and Jews lived as a subordinate, subjugated minority in an empire run by Muslims, largely inhabited by Muslims, in which Muslims were, if you like, full citizens, if you can call that, or at least full subjects of the empire, whereas Jews were a tolerated a minority as Christians were. So how did Zionism begin? Well, there's two levels to understanding its origins. One level is that the Jews who had lived in what is called Palestine or the land of Israel two and three thousand years ago and had a sovereign state here under King David, King Solomon, eventually the Maccabees, were dispersed or dispersed during the first and second centuries under Roman rule. They rebelled against the Romans twice, and the Romans expelled some of them. And then gradually, other Jews drifted away from Palestine, moved to other areas, North Africa, eventually Europe, and um, uh, the land um, was emptied of Jews. But Jews always, uh, in their religion, in their faith, in their prayers, repeated the sentence next year in Jerusalem. In other words, they always wanted in some way to return to Palestine and to reestablish sovereignty in the land of Israel, as they had once had. So this is one level of uh, the origins, if you like, the spiritual level over 2,000 years of exile uh, of uh, um, Zionism or the wish to return to Palestine. What prompted um, Zionism to emerge as a modern political force at the end of the 19th century was essentially Christian anti-Semitism. There were pogroms, large-scale massacres of Jews 
in the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire, um, in the 1880s, beginning in the 1880s, there'd been waves of pogroms before that, but um, Jews weren't ready for a political movement. But in the 1880s, with a background of rising political movements, nationalist movements in Europe, the German nationalism, Italian nationalism, Serbian nationalism, with that as background, when the pogroms struck in Eastern Europe, in, in uh, Russian-ruled Eastern Europe, uh, Jews um, uh, began to flee. Most of them fled to America. Two million moved to America. Two million Jews moved from the Russian Empire to the United States between 1881 and uh, 1914. But a small minority of Jews in the Russian Empire, under the impact of this anti-Semitism and, if you like, the impact of of rising nationalism, the idea of nationalism, said, why don't we go, instead of rushing to America, why don't we go to Palestine, the land of Israel, the land of our forefathers, and reestablish a sovereign Jewish state there where we can be protected, where we can defend ourselves, where we can be safe. And this was the beginning of Zionism in the 1880s. Slowly, Jews began to trickle, what were called Zionist Jews, began to trickle to Palestine, establish settlements there, buy land first, establish settlements, and um, uh, began to flourish as a, an enterprise, a political enterprise, inside the Ottoman Empire in the area called uh, Palestine, the land of Israel. So what happened when the Ottoman Empire dissolved? How did that change dynamics in Palestine? Well, the Ottoman Empire, being a Muslim empire, uh, wasn't particularly friendly towards the Zionists, but it was extremely corrupt, and you could actually buy away into things. You could buy the right to buy land, to establish a settlement and so on. But the, the, the Ottomans, because of corruption and inefficiency, didn't really uh, curtail the, the emergence of Zionism. And slowly the, the Zionist enterprise grew from, by the, uh, 1914, there were about 80,000 Jews in Palestine. World War I broke out and pitted a number of uh, powers against each other, including Britain, and the Ottoman Empire. They fought, uh, the two uh, empires fought against each other, and the British won. They eventually conquered Palestine towards the end of World War I, and um, essentially threw out the Turks, threw out the Ottoman Empire. And so Palestine came under British governance. And the Zionist enterprise, which had been supported by the British government, it's a bit queer how the British government came to support Zionism, but it did by the end of World War I. And uh, so the Zionist enterprise flourished under this umbrella of British rule uh, from 1917-18 onwards. So can you describe the relationship between Jewish communities and which were growing somewhat rapidly and the Arab communities uh, during this time? Was it getting worse? Can you describe a little bit of what, what was actually happening? Well, the Jews were a very small minority both in 1882 and by 1914 uh, and World War I. They were a very small minority in Palestine, about a tenth of the population of Palestine uh, by the more or less the end of World War I. So the Arabs did not feel particularly threatened. And there were economic relations between them. The Arabs grew certain crops. The Jews bought their produce. Uh, the Jews sold the Arabs certain things, helped them, in fact, in some ways even develop um, uh, certain branches of the economy. But by the end of World War I, nationalism had also struck the Arab world. And and the Arabs began to think also in terms of nationhood, to come out from under the Ottoman Turkish dominance and eventually to, to try and free themselves also from the Western powers who had won the war and took over the Arab lands either directly or indirectly. 
Um, and the Jews were perceived as agents or at least as being chaperoned by the British Empire. And this was resented by the Arabs, who, as I say, wanted to free themselves from the British and didn't like this foreign infidel uh, entry into the, the country of Palestine, which they regarded as an Arab area, even though they'd never, they hadn't been dominant politically in the area for hundreds of years, but they regarded it as an infidel intrusion into an area which was Arab. And uh, by 1920, uh, there began to be Arab riots, hostility, if you like, uh, towards the Zionist enterprise, which, as I say, burgeoned uh, under uh, the British government. Mm. So let's fast forward 15 or 20 years to the Peel Commission. What was the Peel Commission and how did Arabs and Jews react to it? Okay, the, the British ruled Palestine and had this large Arab population here and the small Jewish but growing Jewish Zionist population hoped that they could somehow get the two um, ethnic groups over whom they ruled to um, reach some sort of modus vivendi, some sort of compromise between them. The Jews said, we want a state. The Palestinians said, uh, the Arabs of Palestine, they weren't yet called Palestinians, but the Arabs who lived in Palestine said, we, we believe that the whole of Palestine belongs to us. And the Arabs uh, launched uh, bouts of hostilities against uh, the, the Zionists. And in 1936, they um, rebelled um, against the British presence and against their Zionist wards. 1936, the beginning of what's called the Arab Revolt, which lasted for three years until 1939. During this uh, rebellion, the British tried to find a formula to end the rebellion and to somehow uh, not unite, but find them a, a way to get the Arabs and Jews to live side by side um, in Palestine. And so they, what they did, what um, governments used to do, still do, they, when they have a problem, they establish a commission or a committee to find a way out. So they set up a committee, a commission called the, the Royal Commission for Palestine, called the Peel Commission, uh, named after the head of the commission, uh, which arrived in Palestine at the end of 1936. Um, met Jewish and Arab leaders, met the uh, Arab leaders outside Palestine as well, talked to British officials. And in July 1937, the Peel Commission submitted its uh, recommendations, about, you know, well-documented 400-page uh, volume, reported what, what it saw, what it had found, uh, what it thought the history of the country was, and made recommendations uh, about how to solve the problem here. And the Peel Commission said essentially, the British cannot continue to rule Palestine. There's no way of bridging the gap between Arab nationalist demands for all of Palestine and the, the Zionist demands for a Jewish state in Palestine or even of all of Palestine. What they said then was trying to, um, they said Britain must leave. The Jews and the Arabs should divide the country, should partition the country between them. The Arabs receiving a majority of the territory, most of the territory, about 80%. The British should try and retain Jerusalem and Bethlehem and a corridor to the sea. And, and the Jews should receive something less than 20% of the country. In other words, partition between Jews and Arabs. The Arabs rejected, uh, flatly rejected the Peel Commission um, a proposal, a recommendation for a partition with the establishment of a, a Jewish and an Arab state and said all of the country should be ours. The Jews said, okay, we don't like only 17 or 18 or 20% of the country, but we accept the principle of partition. We can't have all of it. The British are saying we can't have all of it. So let's agree to a small Jewish state uh, alongside an Arab majority state. And as I say, the Arabs rejected this and uh, the rebellion uh, 
was resumed by the Arabs. 1939, the, the British managed to crush the rebellion, but the Peel Commission had established a basic premise for a solution to the conflict in Palestine by laying out the idea of a two-state solution, an Arab state alongside a Jewish state. And this remains, if you like, in the West and in most civilized countries, it remains the formula, the basic idea for a solution to the Palestine-Israel problem, a partition of the land between the two peoples who inhabit the land. But as I said, the Arabs resumed the revolt, the British crushed the revolt, and then World War II broke out, which sort of caused the six year suspension of treatment of the problem of Palestine until World War I finished in 1945. So let's move to 1946 and 47. Now World War II is over and the British have the wherewithal to look at their crumbling empire and get out of places like Palestine and, and also India, which was partitioned at the same time. How was the, what was the new partition plan and how was that decision arrived at? Well, the British at the end of World War II were exhausted by by the war itself, by their loss of blood and treasure in the war. Um, And also were the rising nationalist movements, as you mentioned, in India and other places, including in Palestine, forced them essentially to look at Palestine and say, what can we do? And they saw that there was no bridge, as the Peel Commission had seen. There's no way of bridging the gap between the Jewish and Arab claims. Um, The Jews had begun, in fact, to rebel, or some of the Jews, the right wing of the Jewish uh, Zionist movement, rebelled uh, against the British, started throwing bombs, killing British soldiers in Palestine. And so the British decided in early 1947 to simply throw in the towel, give up and leave Palestine, and hand the problem of Palestine to the United Nations, which was a successor organization to the um, League of Nations, which had approved of, of, in the early 1920s of British rule over Palestine. So the, the British handed over the, the problem uh, saying, we're going to leave, you take care of the problem, you find a solution uh, to the United Nations. The United Nations established another commission, a new committee, to look at the problem afresh. Uh, this was called the United Nations Special Commission co- or Committee on Palestine, UNSCOP. And UNSCOP came up with its own solution for the problem of Palestine in the summer of 1947. Their proposal was based in principle on the Peel Commission proposal of uh, the partition of the country into two states, one Jewish, the other Arab. The Arabs again rejected this proposal. The United Nations General Assembly meeting in November 1947 approved the proposal of partitioning Palestine into two states, one Arab and one Jewish. The Jews accepted the proposal, the Arabs rejected it, and the Arabs went to war against the Jewish state and against, if you like, the will of the international community as embodied in the partition proposal approved by the General Assembly. So when the Palestinians... That was the beginning of the 1948 war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so the UN approves the partition, which gives them both a state. This time, the state for the Jews is larger than it was in the Peel Commission 10 years prior. It's closer to 50-50, but what, what, were the exact, what was the exact split of the land? Okay, the United Nations General Assembly approved, essentially approved UNSCOP's recommendation of dividing the country into two states. The Jews were allotted in the United Nations partition resolution 55% of the country, and the Arabs were allotted something close to 45% of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the area of the Jews, the 55% include, was 
half of it, at least more than half, was desert. It was the Negev Desert, the southern part, the uninhabited part of Palestine. The Arabs got most of the center and north of the country in this partition resolution. The Arabs, of course, as I said, rejected it, but also they said, why are we, two-thirds of the population of the country, being given only 45% of the country, whereas the Jews, only one-third of the population of Palestine, were being allotted um, uh, over 50%. The Jews counted, as I said, uh, we're being given a large part of it is desert, and essentially we're being given land for all the Jews who still want to come to Palestine. And don't forget, this is after the Second World War, where six million Jews had just been murdered in Europe, and there were hundreds of thousands of survivors, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, who wanted to reach Palestine, or at least the Zionist movement wanted them to reach Palestine. So the, the Jews said, well, we need a little more land than our proportion of the population uh, justifies because we need room to resettle all these poor uh, survivors of the uh, Holocaust and other Jews. Um, and so that, that was the, the, the proposal the United Nations agreed on. This was, if you like, the will, the understanding of the uh, community of uh, the world's community of nations as embodied in this proposal. And part of the logic behind that, that was compelling to the international community was that there are many, many Arab states, like there are many states that an, an ethnic Arab could go to if he were in trouble. And yeah, there was no Jewish state. And it seemed like the, the pogroms in Eastern Europe and the Holocaust, you know, had there been one Jewish state in the world, there would have been somewhere for refugees to go to. And it seemed like just nowhere on earth was hospitable to the Jews. Now, in, in retrospect, as an American, when you see a th thriving Jewish community, uh, you know, in New York and in LA and many other places, you can wonder, well, why didn't they just come to America? So can you uh, address that question? Yeah, I said originally that one of the major impetuses of Zionism, the emergence of Zionism, was uh, anti-Semitism, which the Jews suffered in their lands of dispersion, mostly in Europe at the time. This was reinforced, the sense of alienation and a, a, a lack of security of the Jews was reinforced during World War II and the revelations of what had happened in World War II, meaning the Holocaust. In other words, six million Jews had been killed. The world community had done nothing to save them. And a, a, the Jews at last said, well, th this, is, this is, has been our argument for 50 years, the Zionist movement. For 50 years, why we need a state where we can be safe. Nobody's going to come and save us. We have to have our own state which can protect us. And the world community essentially bowed its head and said, yes, we understand. Now we understand your argument. And that's why the major th reasoning behind uh, the United Nations uh, voting, most of the countries agreed this, this is what the Jews must have. This is, if you like, in some way compensation for or for the guilty conscience for what we didn't do during World War II in saving, we didn't save the Jews. So now we at least must give them a state. Uh, the Arabs, of course, argued at the same time, why should we, the Arabs, pay for um, what uh, Europeans had done to the Jews over the last 100 years or even the last 2,000 years? The Jews, uh, as, as you rightly point out, said, well, but you Arabs have some over a dozen states. Today, in fact, there are 23 Arab states. You have lots of territory uh, in which you are sovereign. We Jews want just this little sliver of land along the Mediterranean, which used to be our state 2,000 years ago. That's all we want for our safety and for our sovereignty. The Arabs never accepted this argument. 
Was there any religious component to wanting that land specifically uh, on the part of the Zionists? Yeah, look, the Zionist movement was essentially a rebellion against the old world of, of the Jews, which was a religious world. They basically turned their backs on the, the world of their fathers and the religion of their fathers. It was a very secular movement, not a religious movement. It was an anti-religious movement, essentially Zionism, which said we cannot trust God to save us. We must do our work. Uh, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe he does exist. But we have to do, um, you know, get safety on our own uh, through establishing a Jewish state. But there was always a small minority of Zionists who were also religious, a very small minority. Today, it's a very large minority of Zionists, of the Jews in the state of Israel who are religious. But this wasn't the case in 1948. In 1948, uh, the religious component among the Jews was probably about 10%. Today, as I say, it's probably closer to 30%. But at the time, it wasn't religion which was driving the Zionist movement, even though there was a religious component, in the sense, if you like, even among the secular Jews, that the history of their people, of the Jewish people, was connected in some way to God and God having, if you like, planted the Jews in the land of Israel under Abraham and his successors. So there was a sort of a connection between religion and political life, uh, political um, interests, if you like. But in 1948, when Zionists established the state of Israel in the midst of the 1948 war, religion wasn't very important on the Zionist side, which is one reason, incidentally, the Jews, uh, the, the Jews who led the country, uh, Ben-Gurion, etc., all the socialists who governed the country, did not even use the, the word God in the Declaration of Independence of Israel, unlike, if you like, the American Declaration of Independence. So, in, but let, let me add, sure. let me add one other thing. But on the Arab side, religion, I think, was very important in 1948, as it has been throughout the conflict since then. The sense that the Jews were an infidel people, eh, that the Jews are not eh, God's chosen people. We Arabs, we Muslims, are the chosen people, and they, our prophet is the real prophet, and he commands us, if you like to fight against the infidel who is trying to take over this Muslim tract of territory, which is ours by right. That's how the Arab Muslims felt in 48, and many of them feel, it, feel the same way today. So when the Palestinians attacked, rejecting the UN partition, and then the Jews won that essentially civil war, and then five Arab nations subsequently attacked every surrounding nation plus Iraq, what were their goals in attacking Israel? Israel's goals in the 48 war was essentially to defend itself. In other words, the Zionist enterprise was being attacked by the Palestinian Arab militias and subsequently by invading Arab states, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. They were be, the, the enterprise was being assaulted. And then when they declared statehood, the, the Jews in, on the 14th of May, 1948, the following day, the Arab armies invaded from outside. And the Jews in both stages of the war, their main aim was survival. That is the survival of the Zionist enterprise, of the community, which at the time numbered 650,000 Jews altogether in Palestine, and the survival of the new state, which had just been created. This was the main Jewish aim. To this, I would say that in the course of the war, two additional war aims accrued. One was to expand the area of the Jewish state beyond the territory allotted in the United Nations Partition Resolution. If the United Nations had allotted 55% of Palestine to the Jews, by the war, by war's end, 78% of Palestine was in Jewish hands by the time the Jews won the 48th war. And the Jews uh, 
Under Ben-Gurion also, I think essentially, there's arguments among Israeli historians about this. The first part is not controversial. The second part is more, is controversial. And the Jews, uh, the leadership under Ben-Gurion, I think, also sought to reduce the number of Arabs in the Jewish state, knowing that the Arabs were fighting against the, the Jewish state, would not be loyal citizens when they were, if and when they remained in the Jewish state. Uh, he wanted to reduce the number, if you like, by expulsion. And the number uh, of Arabs in the area which became the state of Israel was vastly reduced. About 700,000 Arabs were uprooted from their homes. They fled in face of battle. A few were expelled. A few were ordered by their own side to leave the country, uh, the area uh, under Jewish sovereignty. But um, the 700,000 Arabs were uprooted from their homes in the course of the war. And these became the Palestinian Arab refugees, the Palestinian Arab refugee problem. On the Arab side, the war aims are um, not as clear. As I say, the Jews' main aim was survival, simply the survival of the, the population, the Jewish population in Palestine, and survival of the state as it was born. Uh, the Arab war aims are not as clear. We don't have Arab documentation. The Arab archives still remain completely closed to all researchers. So we don't know what that governor, the, the Arab um, presidents, the Arab military commanders, etc., what their war aims were. But one can sort of divine their war aims from the way their armies moved into Palestine and from various declarations they made publicly and uh, in face of um, Western diplomats who talked to the Arab leaders. So uh, one would say that the Egyptians, they have some various war aims, different Arab governments. Uh, the Egyptians said they're entering the country, invading the country in order to save the Palestinians. That's part of the explanation and probably is in part correct as well. But the, the, I think the Egyptians essentially wanted to take over part of Palestine and annex it to themselves, the southern part of Palestine, uh, the Negev Desert. They wanted essentially to uh, take for themselves. And vaguely, they hoped, well, maybe our invasion will lead to the, the, the destruction of the Jewish state. So they probably had that at the back of their minds as well, destroy the Jewish state as part of their war aim. The same applies more or less to the Syrians. They also had some territorial ambitions in Palestine. The Iraqis didn't, but they decided uh, they went along with, the, with the, the program of the Jordanians uh, and the Egyptians and Syrians and sent an expeditionary force to fight in Palestine during the war. The Jordanians were a bit different. The Jordanians under Abdallah, King Abdallah, who's incidentally the, the great-grandfather of the present Abdallah, Abdallah II of Jordan, they um, essentially preferred, it sounds a bit strange, but Abdallah, the king of Jordan in 1948, preferred to have a Jewish state as his neighbor instead of a Palestinian state. He didn't like the Palestinians. He didn't trust the Palestinian leader, Khaj Amin al-Husseini. And so he probably he essentially reached an agreement with the Zionist leadership, a secret agreement, before the, going into the war. He did enter the war against the Zionists, but with a separate agreement in his pocket, which said, let's share the land between us. Instead of a Palestinian Arab state alongside a Jewish state, let's have the Palestinian areas under Jordanian sovereignty. So his army essentially entered uh, Palestine and, and took over, occupied the West Bank. You know, the area of East Jerusalem and the in Nablus and Hebron and annexed it to Jordan. This was essentially their war aim to take a chunk of Palestine for them, for themselves, to, if you like, expand the, the area of uh, the kingdom of Jordan. 
and not so much to attack the Jews. In fact, they never actually attacked the territory earmarked by the United Nations for Jewish sovereignty. So if you like me, like I could sum up the, the Arab war aims in some way, apart from Jordan, the Arab states were, would, would have been happy to see the end, the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel when they invaded. But I think some of them, the leaders were realistic and understood this is not going to be achieved. Maybe we can get a little bit of territory for ourselves, an exit for our own countries, the south of the country by Egypt, the north of the country by uh, uh, Syria, uh, uh, and so on. In part, also, the Arab leaders were driven by their own public. In other words, the public uh, hearing in propaganda and the radios and so on that the Palestinians were being uh, beaten by the Israelis, the public sort of surged into the streets and um, onto the gates of the palaces where the Arab kings and leaders lived and sort of forced the leaders to invade Palestine, even though the leaders, such as King Farouk of Egypt, knew that uh, the Israelis were too strong and couldn't be beaten, but they couldn't resist their own public, uh, which wanted their armies to invade. So this was also, if you like, one of the causes of the Arab invasion of, of Palestine, fear by the leadership, which wasn't very legitimate. They were kings, not elected leaders. Uh, they feared their own public, that if they didn't, do, didn't join the invasion, they themselves might be ousted by popular uh, uprising in their own countries. So in the, in the process of winning the independence war, as you noted, Israel expelled countless Palestinians from their homes who fled to Arab countries, fled to the, the West Bank, which was then occupied by Jordan and various other places. And the expulsion of Palestinians from their homes is one of the central grievances to this day against the Israeli state. And it's something that you've played a, a big role in uncovering elements of in the archives, which were sealed for a very long time. Obviously, Israel's leaders had strategic reason to not show the full extent of what was done to Palestinians. But you've also very controversially defended the, the expulsion. So can you talk about a little bit about how it could be possible that an expulsion of innocent civilians could possibly be justified? How, how do you think about this issue as a historian and ethically? Well, firstly, I'm not sure the word expulsion is completely accurate in describing how the Palestinians were uprooted in 48. A large number of them, most of them, simply fled their homes in the face of battle and moved to the West Bank or to Lebanon or to Syria or to the Gaza Strip in the face of battle. They didn't want to be, didn't want to be killed by shells, Israeli shells, Jordanian shells. They wanted to move out of harm's way. Some of them, a certain proportion, were actually expelled by Israeli troops from their homes. And then a similar number probably were also advised or ordered by their own leaders to leave. Um, uh, to leave their homes on the assumption that they would return to their homes when the war ended. The expulsive part of 48 in terms of Israel's behavior isn't so much the acts of expulsion during the war as Israel's unwillingness at the end of the war to allow the Palestinian refugees to return. And the Israelis didn't allow the Palestinian refugees to return at the end of the war. The Israelis were, uh, six, the Jews in Israel, in numbered 650,000 in 1948. The Arab refugees were 700,000. Had the Jews allowed the Arab refugees to return to their homes in what became the state of Israel at the end of 40, the 48 war, they would have been outnumbered 
by Arabs who are against their state. So it's not a matter of justification. The demographics of the situation were such that Israel couldn't have survived with a majority of Arabs as its new citizens, as opposed to a minority of Jews in the country. But one mustn't forget that the Jews didn't begin the war. The Jews were attacked by the Palestinian Arab militias and then attacked the second time by the Arab states. The Jews, in defending themselves, it's like a man who's in a house and his neighbors come and try and kill him. And he throws the, na- the, throws the killer out of his house. That's essentially what happened to the Palestinians. You can say that it's unethical, that they should have allowed them to stay in the house, that they should have allowed them to return to the house. But essentially, they were defending themselves. This is the, the, if you like, in a sense, a justification for the uprooting of the Palestinians. They began the war. They have to suffer the consequences. The Palestinians afterwards said, well, why should we suffer the consequences? Okay, we tried to throw you out, eh, to destroy your Jewish state, to destroy your Zionist enterprise, but uh, we didn't succeed. Okay, now we want to come back to our, our homes in Palestine and maybe even try and subvert the state from within with a majority of Arabs uh, being in a country which is democratic, we would overthrow the Jewish state from within. So the, the, the Zionists ever since 1948 have said, that is the Israeli governments, all Israeli governments, right wing, left wing have said, we can't allow a mass return of the refugees because this will subvert our state from within. They will be not necessarily loyal, probably disloyal citizens and uh, oppose our very existence here. Uh, why should we allow them back? We can't do that. So uh, you recently... Let let, let me add something to this. There's a problem here in terms of individual Arabs who became refugees. One can certainly understand the desire and the ethical uh, thrust of the desire of Arabs who left the country. You call them innocent victims. Well, some of them were innocent, some of them were less innocent. But the the desire of families to return to their homes and lands uh, in Palestine. But the problem isn't an individual problem, ethical problem. It's a national political problem in which, as I said, if a large number of Palestinian refugees had returned in 48 or 49, or subsequently, today incidentally, there are 6 million Palestinian refugees on the United Nations rolls, this would mean the end of the Jewish state. It would cease being a Jewish state, would become an Arab majority state. Mm -hmm. In other words, a 24th Arab state in the world. I think the world has sufficient, a sufficient number of Arab states. 23 is quite a lot. In fact, it's more than most peoples have. So this is a, this next one is a question from an, an acquaintance of mine who is an Arab, uh, Arab Israeli. He, um, you recently co-published a study about additional details about the poisoning of the water supply of Palestinians in 1948. Can you tell us what you found? I recently published with a um, friend and fellow scholar, uh, Benny Kedar, an article about uh, an is- the Israeli campaign during the 1948 uh, to poison wells, you know, poison, to pollute wells with bacteria in Palestine as part of the war effort against the Palestinian Arab militias and against the invading Arab armies. The idea was that if you conquer an Arab village and you don't want the militias or the, the inhabitants to return to that village, if you poison the well, the, 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 the village as well, it will, they won't be able to retake or re, resettle in that area. And if you poison wells along the Arab army's lines of advance into Palestine through the Gaza Strip, 
or uh, through the West Bank into Israel, if you poison the wells along the Arabs' route of march, you will um, create an impediment to the Arab advance and slow down, if you like, or harm the Arab military, the war effort. Uh, this was behind uh, uh, this campaign known as Cast Thy Bread. That was the code name of the uh, campaign, which was mounted by the Israeli military uh, from April 1948 onwards, just as Israel was facing the pan-Arab invasion, the invasion by the Arab armies. A lot of Israelis at the time had a... It was a very secret campaign, uh, but the, um, uh, Benny Kedar and myself found the documentation in the Israeli archives uh, of the development, the course of this campaign, how it were, came about, uh, who, took the, who gave the orders, how it worked. And in effect, it had very little influence, apparently, on the war itself, very little influence on the Arab armies, even if that was intended, it affected very few villagers, and probably had uh, caused very few casualties, as far as we can tell from the documentation. A few people died in Acre, the, village, the town of Acre, but that seems to have been more or less the fatalities caused by this campaign. But we discovered the documents and thought that this is another part of the history of the 1948 war. Various uh, scholars had, or journalists had written about this, uh, but based on rumors, uh, based on speculations, uh, we found the documents and outlined what exactly had happened. So I can't help but as an American think of the analogy to our founding and the controversies and the moral controversies around our founding. Obviously, to begin, there is the decimation of the Native American population, most of which occurred because of disease, but certainly some of which occurred through just through violence and westward expansion being pushed violently toward the West so that settlers could form settlements. And then there's obviously the issue of slavery, and which we often call our original sin as a country. At some level, people critique these elements of our founding. No one really thinks that they constitute a total invalidation of America's right to exist as a country, in part because they are so far, far back in the past, but also because it's just totally impractical that America would unwind itself to apologize for its, the ugliness that occurred at, at its origins. But this brings me basically to the question of globally, if you look at all of the developed nations in the world, all of Israel's peer nations in Europe and in the developed nations in Asia, America, Canada, Australia, etc., how would you rate Israel's founding on the moral dimension in the wider landscape of nations that all of which have some skeletons in the closet. Would you say it was better than average, worse than average, roughly average, etc.? I think it was probably better than average uh, on balance. Um, if we're talking about what happened in 1948, more recent behavior in the Israeli occupation in the territories, it's a different question. But when in terms of the origin of what happened, look, the, the Israelis, the, the, the Jewish community in Palestine was attacked by their Palestinian Arab neighbors and then by the Arab states as Israel was founded. Uh, the Israelis fought back. Uh, Israel suffered um, 1% of its population killed by the Arabs in the 1948 war. That's more or less, if, you, if it had happened to America today, if the, America lost 1% of its population in an attack by outsiders, that would have meant, would have meant 30, 30 million Americans were killed. Do I have that right? No, 1% would be 3 million Americans killed. No. Yeah, three yeah, million 3 Americans million, would yeah. have been killed. Yeah, uh, that that's quite a large uh, a percent, uh, you know, casualties. 
So uh, Israel felt it was attacked. It had the right to uh, repel the invaders and at the same time to uproot or not allow back the Palestinian Arabs. When you think in terms of actual atrocities, apart from expulsion, which I don't think is an atrocity, but in terms of the killings and massacres and rapes, there was very, very little of this in the 1948 war. I know we all, people always talk about Israeli massacres. There were also Arab massacres of Israelis during the 1948 war. In fact, the first big massacre occurred uh, when Arabs killed their fellow, uh, their co-workers in the Haifa oil refinery in December 1947. But altogether, all in all, Israelis uh, killed deliberately, massacred uh, something like 800 Arabs in the course of this year-long war, uh, which was forced upon them, which they, they didn't begin. The Arabs began it. So when you think about the number, 800 killed, Arabs killed, all told in massacres by Israeli troops over a one-year-long war, uh, this is really very, very small, a very small number of atrocities, a very small atrocity or a very small number of atrocities. The same applies, incidentally, to rapes. There were probably a dozen cases of rape in the 48 war, as Israel occupied hundreds of Arab villages and towns. If you compare this, say, to what happened in Yugoslavia, in one or two days in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, Serbs killed 7,000 people in two days in in, in Srebrenica, 800 killed by Jews in massacres of Arabs in 1948 is a very, very small number. And as I said, there were also Arab massacres of Jews in which several hundred Jews died uh, also in the course of the 48 war. So if you wanted me to put, give it a, a, a mark, I would say uh, when you, if you want to compare it to the, the mass murder of Indians by Americans in the, the drive westward over the centuries in America's founding or uh, other um, uh, countries' uh, treatment of um, their enemies in the years of their foundation, uh, the Israeli uh, behavior is actually pretty good. That's my, my, I know that a lot of people won't like to hear this, but mm-hmm. when you look at the actual numbers and figures and what happened, Israel's behavior, I think, was very good. This doesn't mean that I now condone certain Israeli policies and behaviors today. This is something else. I'm talking about 1948. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to today in a second. Let's just Fast forward and and go maybe a little more quickly through the history since 1967. Let's actually just fast forward to 1967. What were the motives of the Arab countries that invaded in during the Six Day War? What did they want? Well, the Six Day War was uh, caused by mistakes and miscalculations. It wasn't an intended war, neither by Israel nor by the Arabs. The Egyptian uh, leader, uh, Colonel Nasser, uh, was flexing his muscles and hoped to remilitarize the Sinai Peninsula, which had been demilitarized after Israel's withdrawal from Sinai in 1957. And he uh, went further than that. Not only did he put his troops into the Sinai Peninsula, but he closed uh, an international waterway, the states of the states of uh, the Straits of Tehran and the Suez Canal to Israeli shipping. These were acts of war. The Israelis had to mobilize. They didn't know if the Egyptians were going to attack or not attack, but they had to mobilize uh, to confront the possible assault by the Egyptian army. And then the the generals came to the the government and said, we can't maintain this situation of total mobilization uh, forever. It's economically uh, impossible and politically impossible. The Egyptians have broken international law and they're forcing us to go to war. And the Israeli prime minister reluctantly told the generals, okay, attack. And so the Israelis preempted 
and attack the Egyptian army in Sinai. Uh, then the Jordanians and Syrians, off their own uh, bat, attacked the Israelis on the eastern side, on the Israel's eastern frontier. Israel pleaded with Jordan not to enter the war, not to shoot. We won't do anything to you. We won't attack the West Bank or Jordan in the West Bank or East Jerusalem. If you stop shooting, the Jordanians wouldn't listen. And eventually Israel conquered the West Bank in response to the Jordanian attack. And that's what happened in the Six-Day War. So Israel took the Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. The Israeli government, it's not well known, but the Israeli government, a few days after the war ended, in which Israel had one of a wonderful victory, if you like, the Israelis secretly essentially decided that they would give back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and the Golan Heights to Syria in exchange for a demilitarization of these areas and a peace treaty with these countries. The countries were unwilling to make peace with Israel. The Israelis were unwilling, because of internal divisions in the, inside Israel, were unwilling to give back the West Bank and East Jerusalem to Jordan. I think this was a terrible mistake, but that's what Israel did. And they held on to the West Bank, which was the origin, of course, of the present occupation, which has lasted ever since 1967. So let's talk a little bit about how the settlements began. Uh, my understanding from your book, Righteous Victims, is that the settlements in the West Bank began almost immediately after the occupation. What were the motives of the settlers and were they shared by Israeli leadership? Well, it's, it's, it's a complicated question. What happened was that within days of Israel's conquest of the West Bank, Israeli right-wingers pressured the government to establish Israeli settlements in the West Bank in areas where there had been Jewish settlements before the 1948 war, which were destroyed by the Jordanians when they took over the West Bank in 1948. The, the children of the settlers of pre-48 settlements said, well, we want to go back to where our fathers had established settlements in the Etzion Block, for example, just south of Jerusalem. And the Israeli government, because it was divided between right-wingers, left-wingers, centrists, couldn't decide, and the settlers were basically given their head, and they went ahead and, if you like, settled the places on their own initiative. And then the government sort of went along with them and supplied them with electricity, military protection, and so on. And eventually, more and more settlements were established. So behind the settlement drive was a, if you like, an historic um, religious impetus, because the area of the West Bank was uh, the heartland of the Jewish state of King David and the Jews of two and three thousand years ago. Places like um, Bethlehem, um, Shiloh, Sebastia, Samaria, and so on. These were the heartland of the Jews two or three thousand years ago, and uh, East Jerusalem, of course. And the settlers said, well, we want to return. We want these areas, which were our uh, original you know, crucible of the Jewish people, we want them to be uh, in Jewish hands, to remain in Jewish hands. Alongside that, there was a, the government had um, strategic uh, political considerations were to do, to do with the highlands. That is, the highlands of the West Bank were seen as strategic, and the generals basically said Israel's border should be along the Jordan River, in other words, east of the West Bank. That's a natural frontier, the Jordan River. So there was a sort of a political strategic um, um, motive for settling in the West Bank and holding on to the West Bank, in addition to this spiritual historical reason for settling there by the settlers and the the religious right. So you also say that 
especially starting in the late 70s, there was a somewhat concerted effort to make life harder for the Palestinians, the the many Palestinians living in the West Bank, in subtle and not so subtle ways to basically encourage them to leave of their own volition. Do you think that attitude remains today or do you, or, or has that changed? Well, the, the government didn't want, most of the ministers in, in the government would have been happy to see the backs of the Palestinians. In other words, to see the Palestinians leave the West Bank. But they weren't uh, going to expel them. They, they understood that what had happened to the Arabs in what became the state of Israel in 48 couldn't be repeated in the modern world. And they maybe they also would have regarded it as immoral. But they were willing to make life not pleasant or unpleasant for the, the Palestinians to a certain degree. And this probably impelled some Palestinians to leave, but not very many. Uh, in other words, the, the the life which um, the way they lived in the West Bank was essentially a live, live and let live. The Israeli army said, you don't carry out terrorist attacks against us. We won't touch you. You can go ahead and live your life. But uh, it was a military administration. There were uh, mass arrests when there was demonstrations. There was clampdowns. Uh, there were curfews uh, when there was trouble. Uh, it wasn't a, a pleasant life for the Palestinians. But uh, uh, those who um, kept their nose uh, out of trouble uh, were basically left alone. This is essentially what happened. And economically, they were allowed to prosper and did prosper. Palestinians over the decades fr- since 1967 lived much better lives than they'd lived before 67. Uh, they prospered, if you like, alongside the growing prosperity of the Israeli state as well. And, and that's, that's what happened. But as more and more uh, Israelis settled in the territories, uh, they began to constrict the living space of the Palestinians in the West Bank itself. The settlers themselves began to make life uh, difficult. Uh, If not the army, the settlers began to make life difficult for the Palestinian inhabitants. So so you've you've also written that the Palestinian nationalist cause was more or less dead between 1949 and the war in, in 1967, and that Israel's victory in the Six Day War and their subsequent occupation of the West Bank and Gaza reignited the Palestinian nationalist cause and, and brought it back from the dead. Do you think there is anything that Israel could have done in the aftermath of 67 that would have kept the Palestinian nationalist cause dormant? Yeah, I think, I think Israel made a terrible um, mistake. Uh, in the 67 war, they had no choice but to conquer the West Bank and East Jerusalem, uh, from which the Jordanians were shooting at the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv suburbs. Uh, they had no choice but to conquer the West Bank and um, East Jerusalem. But I think in retrospect, what Israel should have done was conquer the West Bank, beat the Jordanian army, and immediately retreat to Israel. To simply have abandoned the territory which they just conquered, and let the Jordanians come back and rule there. Had that happened, uh, Palestinians uh, possibly might have um, not demanded statehood because they were, would have been living again under Arab Muslim rule. Uh, they wouldn't have had the great impetus to, to reach uh, their own statehood and sovereignty over themselves, uh, which is what they uh, had uh, following Israel's um, uh, occupation of the West Bank. And here, the Palestinians were then being ruled by uh, non-Muslims, non-Arabs, by Jews, 
which, uh, as you say, reignited the Palestinian national nationalist cause. Had Israel rep- uh, uh, withdrawn immediately, let the Jordanians back in, history might have been different. Okay, so I want to move from the history of the conflict to the present and the present ethics of the conflict. And I, I guess I'll begin with this question of the power imbalance between the two sides. So obviously, this power, most of the time we've been talking about, there wasn't such a large difference between Israel and her enemies. I mean, like if you count all of the Arab, the five Arab states surrounding it and Israel's army in 48 or 67 or 73, Israel was, was never sure it was going to win all, uh, any of those conflicts, definitely not in 48 and 73. And, and, and so, but today we have a very different situation. We have a situation where Israel is one of the most powerful militaries in the world. It's backed by America. It has no, you know, it, none of its neighbors, I guess we can talk about Iran later, but none of, none of its historic enemies can hold a candle to its military. And so when Israel has an exchange with Hamas or Hezbollah, Hamas sends rockets into Israeli villages, Israel retaliates. And what, what, we, what we've seen is there's often a, a ratio of casualties on both sides where Israel is killing more people than, uh, than Palestinians are, right? Even if Palestinians are beginning the attacks, when Israel retaliates, you see a three to one, a five to one, in any given case might be a 10 to 1 ratio of fatalities. And many people see this and they say, listen, Israel is the bully of the situation. Israel is the bully. The Palestinians are being bullied. End of analysis. So what do you have to say to someone that sees the situation that way? David and Goliath's um, image pertains here, but on two levels. Israel, which has a population of about 7 or maybe today 8 million Jews, 7 or 8 million Jews, is surrounded by an Arab world of 100 million or more, 200 million, God knows how many uh, Arabs there are in the 23 Arab states, and a whole Muslim world behind these Arab states, supporting these Arab states. So uh, in, in that sense, Israel is the weaker partner in this conflict. It's an, there's an Israeli-Arab conflict, uh, even if the government, some Arab governments have made peace with Israel, the governments of uh, Egypt and Jordan have made peace, and now there's uh, countries in the Gulf and Morocco who have made their peace with Israel. But the Arab public, the Arab world, still opposes Israel's existence. It hasn't um, resigned itself to Israel's existence. And uh, given the chance, so Israelis feel, might again uh, gang up on Israel and dis- try and destroy it. So it's true Israel has a large army, a strong army. It has probably atomic weapons, so they say, but it still feels surrounded by a large, hostile Arab world, which doesn't actually want it to exist. On the other hand, there's an Israeli David and Goliath image between Israel and the Palestinians. That is, the Palestinians are a small fraction of the Arab world. And here, there's an imbalance in which Israel is five, ten, a hundred times stronger than its Palestinian neighbors who happen to also be under Israeli military occupation, at least in the West Bank. And in the Gaza Strip, they're at least surrounded by Israel, if not under physical occupation. So whenever there's a clash between Israel and the Palestinians, as you rightly say, eh, there's always far more Arab casualties than there are Israeli casualties, because the Israelis are that much stronger. They have rockets which can shoot down the Arab rockets, and they have tanks and guns and whatever, which eh, can overpower the Palestinians. Israel doesn't really use much force. It always 
fights against the Palestinians when there is an eruption vis-a-vis, for example, the, the Gaza Strip. Israel fights with its hand behind, hands tied behind its back uh, because it doesn't want to cause such disproportion in casualties, which can only ignite more hatred. But nonetheless, the clashes end up with Israel killing more Palestinians than our uh, Israeli did. Uh, so th- this is the reality. But but Israelis have to think in both terms. They have to think in terms of us vis-a-vis the Palestinians and us surrounded in this area by 100 million Muslims who don't really want us to exist here and might one day gang up on us, perhaps with the help of Iran in the future as well, another Muslim state. So in the West Bank, as you say, after the 67 war, Israel was mostly happy to live and let, let live unless there was a terrorist threat. But that, ha- that situation has evolved very much, partly because of the reaction to the intifadas. And now there is a, you know, a system of checkpoints and a lack of freedom of movement for Palestinians in the, in the West Bank and military courts that have extremely high conviction rates and reports of, you know, collective punishment of violence, you know, punishing someone's cousin because they did something wrong. And, you know, obviously this is the stuff of military occupations at one level. You know, there's rarely a nice military occupation, uh, historically speaking. On the other hand, this occupation has lasted 55 years where most occupations last, you know, a a few years or, you know, five or, or 10 at the most. And because of how long this one has lasted, people have labeled it labeled Israel as an apartheid state. So I'm curious, what do you make of the designation of Israel as an apartheid state? Well, Israel uh, has 7 million uh, Jewish citizens and 1.5 or 1.7 million Arab citizens. Israel's Arab citizens have full rights. They vote, they have Knesset members, they have even occasionally a member in the cabinet, they have Supreme Court justices. Israeli Arabs enjoy full essentially full full rights compared to Israeli Jews. So in this sense, there's no apartheid. Israel isn't an apartheid state. Arabs can move freely. They were uh, limited in their ability to move and where they worked uh, for the first uh, decade or so of Israel's existence. But from the 1960s on, they lived as equal citizens uh, inside Israel. The problem is that there is a occupation uh, of the West Bank. And in the West Bank, uh, Arabs do not have rights. They're not enfranchised. They don't have the vote. They're not citizens. Uh, they have, as you, s- they suffer from roadblocks, from curfews. If there's terrorism, collective punishment exists. There were times when uh, uh, suspects were tortured uh, by the Israeli security authorities. Uh, maybe still are. It was a military occupation. It's not apartheid because in South Africa, the population, the small white minority population, ruled over disenfranchised inhabitants of South Africa, not a military occupation, but these were the inhabitants simply weren't given rights. Israeli Arabs are given rights, but in the the territories which are considered uh, occupied and are occupied, the Arabs have no rights, and this is a terrible situation. The problem is Israel since 67 has essentially been caught in a terrible dilemma. Those Israelis who would like to give up the occupation and get out of the West Bank and maybe even also East Jerusalem are constrained by the problem of security. If you leave, if Israel leaves the West Bank, uh, the Arabs in the West Bank uh, will probably vote for Hamas into power. And the Hamas, uh, the extremist uh, fundamentalist Muslim organization, will start shooting rockets into Israel 
from the West Bank. And then what do you do? You reoccupy the West Bank. The Hamas might invite in foreign armies to come in and base themselves, for instance, Iranian troops in the West Bank. What do you do? Do you reoccupy the place? So that's the, the dilemma. You leave the West Bank, which you want to do because you don't want to, want to occupy another people. You don't want to lord it over another people. But on the other hand, your security will be mortally endangered if you leave the territory. And this has been essentially the Israeli dilemma of those who want to leave. There are Israelis who don't want to leave the West Bank. They want to continue to rule, rule over the, the, the people, who, the Palestinians who live there and to um, settle more and more of the land in the West Bank and turn it into Jewish uh, land. But, so they don't maybe care about this dilemma. But they also understand that there is a security dilemma as well. They understand that if the territory is handed over to a Palestinian control and the Hamas, as they did when they had elections, wins control over the territory, it will it threatens Israel's existence. It's a terrible dilemma. But I don't think the word of apartheid applies. It's not the situation. So the Israeli public has moved to the right rather significantly over the past 20 years. And the recent government is the, the most right-wing government in its history. And some, some are calling it racist and fascist, or, or at least some elements of the government. Why has the public turned to the right? I know there are, there are many causes, but in your view, what are the causes? There's two, two main causes why Israel has drifted. The Jewish population of Israel has drifted rightwards. One is continued Arab intransigence. That is, the Arabs, the Pal- essentially the Palestinian Arabs, have been unwilling to reach a territorial compromise. Ehud Barak, Israel's prime minister in, uh, in the year 2000, offered the Palestinians, with the support of Cl- President Clinton, offered them a two-state solution. Have a state in the West Bank, part of Jerusalem or large part of Jerusalem, in your hands as your capital. Uh, that'll be your state. We'll have Israel here. And the Palestinian leadership under Arafat rejected this uh, compromise. And the continued rejection by Arab leaders, including the Palestinian leader today, Abbas, the rejection of this two-state idea as a basis for a compromise has forced Israelis, many Israelis, to say, well, we have no partner, so we have no choice but to continue in this occupation and basically to vote right. The other reason, which is probably even more significant, is the demography in Israel of the Jewish population. Religious right-wing Jews have more children than secular, liberal, left-wing Israelis. They simply have more children. Uh, Secular Israelis have between two and three children per family. Religious families in Israel, uh, who are essentially right-wing, have five, six, seven, eight children per family. And over the years, because Israel is a democracy, maybe this is unfortunate, but it is a democracy, they have more and more voters each successive election. And by, by the year 2022, now they simply have more votes than a secular, liberal, or left-wing Israelis. And that's why Israel has drifted, because of this demographic imbalance between a secular and religious and right-wing Israelis. It seems to me that this problem of demography is huge, and it makes a two-state solution less and less likely with each passing year. Obviously, you know, a two-state solution has been unlikely from the start, I think primarily because Palestinians don't want it or Palestinian leadership doesn't want it or the Palestinian leaders who do want it would be killed by the terrorists who don't. That's the primary, I think, 
impediment, right? If one side doesn't want the thing, then then how do you how do you get that? But on the Israeli side, with each passing year, as the religious right wing minority just grows at a you know seven to two birth rate over over the rest, it seems like it just becomes. I'm looking at 2050. If there were a kind of Palestinian Sadat to arise, like someone that really could convincingly say that he wanted peace, would it matter at that point? Would it be too late? Have the opportunities been permanently missed because of how demography is likely to change in the future? I think you're right. And unfortunately, I agree with you. I think that Israel's drift to the right is a permanent situation and it's only going to get worse with more and more right wing voters receiving the vote. And in addition to that, the continued growth of the settlement enterprise in the West Bank makes less and less territory in the West Bank available for a Palestinian Arab state uh, to emerge. But on the other hand, I think that the Palestinian leaderships still haven't agreed to the principle of a Jewish state uh, next to a Palestinian state. They reject reject that. So I think from both ends, uh, the likelihood of a two-state solution or compromise based on two states uh, has grown unlikely and is going to grow even more unlikely as the decades um, progress. So if that's true, if a two-state solution is just receding further and further into the rear view mirror, what is the wise and just policy towards the occupation? I mean, I, I could picture someone just saying, listen, I know Israel cannot just leave the West Bank. Look what happened when Israel left Gaza. It probably, life became worse for the Gazans in, in the long run. And it also became worse for Israelis living on the border with Gaza. So who benefited other than Hamas from from the, the retreat? At some level, that argument makes sense to me. And it could just be doubly true with the West Bank because it's, it's so much larger. But is there a way, is the proper view that the occupation should just become less, less draconian? Is there a way to make the occupation less? In other words, is everything Israel is doing in occupation in the West Bank, is it all justifiable in the name of security or is there excess? I'm sure there's excess. I think excess is probably built into the idea of a military occupation. Military rule is excessive by nature. It's, it's, it's uh, I don't know about draconian, but it's certainly based on force and uh, often brutal. This is, this is what happens in, in, in military occupation. But I don't see it getting any better. I can see there might be Israeli leaders who would try and make it less brutal, but they, on the ground, the troops will react as they will react to terrorism. They will have uh, curfews. They will have uh, collective punishments. They will shoot at targets um, uh, justifiably or sometimes unjustifiably and kill people who are actually innocent. This happens in occupations among troops who feel threatened by terrorists. And uh, that's how they regard uh, the Arabs who shoot at them. I, I, don't see, I don't see any way of making the occupation any less uh, suppressive, any less oppressive. The occupation has to end, but how you end it when you have a population here which doesn't want to end it uh, in Israel and uh, an Arab population which doesn't want to accept Israel's existence. I, I don't know how you get out of it. I just see more of the same in the coming decades. So there's one argument that uh, people on the Palestinian side or, or sometimes on the BDS side of this conflict make. So you look at Hamas, you look at how Hamas prosecutes their war against Israel. They shoot rockets from high civilian areas, hospitals, school buildings, so that when Israel retaliates against the militants, they can't help but also kill women and children, essentially, which is 
just unacceptable to watch from the point of the international community. But they they intentionally do this, you know. And they when they send rockets, they you know most of the rockets they're sending at they're sending at villages, right? They're sending at villages full of women and children rather than military targets. So the, these are the tactics of terrorism. These are not the tactics of a just war. And and yet some people, you know, some people are tempted to not necessarily defend this, but one argument goes that the reason Hamas uses tactics of terror is because they don't have a state. You know, if they have if they had a state, they would liberalize someone. They would they would not part of of the ruthlessness of how how they operate is a function of their statelessness and their current status and shouldn't be used as an argument not to give them a state. What do you make of that argument as a historian who studied Hamas and their views? It's a problem. Look, you're right. They're not a state. They don't have an air force. They don't have a military with tanks and artillery. They can't fight Israel on the, the same playing field, same level of the playing field. They, they, have, to, they have to use terrorism or uh, certainly rocketry and so on if they want to harm Israel. On the other hand, though, Hamas happens to be a fundamentalist terrorist organization. It's, not, it's, it's also a political party, but it's a terrorist organization. It believes in Israel's destruction. This is one of the principles it's most important principle in its charter and its founding, if you like, Declaration of Independence, they want to destroy Israel. That's what they say. This is an infidel state. Uh, They hate Jews. It's an anti-Semitic organization. In its charter, it blames the Jews for uh, igniting World War I, World War II, and establishing the United Nations. Uh, This all sounds like nonsense, but but, uh, that's the way they see the Jews, and that's the way they see the state of Israel which is the Jewish state. This organization uh, clearly aims at Israel's destruction, in addition to turning, of course, all of Palestine into a fundamentalist Muslim uh, entity. And this is a problem. It's not, a, it's not an organization which is going to reform itself or become moderate. This is not something anybody who understands Hamas will uh, expect or anticipate. Do you think that Netanyahu wants, really wants, a two-state solution with security assured? I don't know. I have no idea. Look, he comes from a right-wing family. He has right-wing views. He's also an opportunist and occasionally pragmatic. He's also somebody who's tried to avoid wars. He knows that wars never end the way you want them to end. But on the other hand, he's a right-winger, so I I don't know what he wants. He says he's paid lip service to the idea of a two-state solution, but I think he understands it's not something which is going to happen, and therefore he is no longer pressing it. So the philosopher Sam Harris, I remember in his engagements on the Israel topic years ago, made a point which seems ethically important to me, which is what would each side do if it could do whatever it wants? Or uh, there's another way of of framing this point as a kind of thought experiment. Say there were, you know, a pill that just was administered to all Israelis such that for some reason, the whole IDF laid down its arms and just couldn't do anything right? Became essentially zombies, right? What would happen if this pill was administered to all of Israel and Hamas could have its way? And then what would happen if, on the other hand, if Palestinians were administered this pill and Israel and the IDF could, could have its way? So I, you know, I made this point earlier about the power imbalance between these two sides. There also may be an intention imbalance. Like what, what do both sides want if they could do whatever? So how would you answer that question? I have a feeling, I fear that there's an asymmetry here. I think if the IDF laid down its arms and the Hamas was allowed to do what it wanted, 
It would simply kill all Israelis or at least subjugate them and turn them into servants of the Islamic State. But probably they would try and expel most and perhaps kill the rest. If the Hamas were to lay down their arms and the Israelis were allowed by the international community to do what they wanted, most Israelis probably wouldn't want to kill or drive out most of the Arabs, but some Israelis might. That's how I would put it. But most Israelis would probably not have the will, the, the desire, the ability to do this, the willingness to do this. But, so I think there's an, an asymmetry here in intentions, or what would be the intentions were they given a free hand. So another question I wanted to ask you is about uh, the notion of Aliyah, which is basically the right of any Jewish person by some definition, and sometimes there are proposals to change the definition and so forth, but the right of any Jewish person somehow defined to immigrate to Israel and be granted more or less automatic citizenship. That's a that's a policy that it makes a lot of sense in 1948, given that you know Jews are getting persecuted and killed anywhere in the world. And the whole point of this state is that they can come here and they'll be safe. In 2022, that's a policy that increasingly seems from the Western liberal eye to just be ethnic chauvinism without a clear security purpose, right? It seems like, yes, there's anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism in America, but there are not pogroms and there probably aren't going to be. So has like what do you make of Aliyah as a policy? Does it seem justifiable to you still, or do you think it's backwards and should be jettisoned? Well, I have a completely different take on this. Um, I think that open-ended Aliyah, in other words, the opening of the borders to any Jew who wants to come here, is a mistake now. Israel is overcrowded. It's an overcrowded country. The traffic jams here are terrible. There's no place to live. There's not enough room to build. Israel should end all immigration to Israel, both of Jews and non-Jews, but essentially we're talking about Jews. I think this is a terrible mistake to have continued this for so long in the past decades. That's on one level. On the other, um, this is the Jewish state, and I can understand uh, the Jewish leadership of the country wanting to allow any Jew who feels persecuted to come and uh, live here and become automatically a citizen. Incidentally, this right, as far as I remember, exists also in some other countries like Germans going back to Germany or whatever are given automatic citizenship or people of German origin. I think the same might apply to Ireland as well. I'm not sure about this. But but the the idea that the the Jews anywhere have the ability to come here uh, for safety's sake, uh, should they feel persecuted or should they actually be persecuted somewhere, there's nothing really wrong with that except, as I say, on the level of demographics is simply too many people here in this country should basically close its doors to anybody who's not actually under threat. So I want to ask one question about the, the settlements today. Now, this is an area where I, there's so much journalism politicized on both sides about what exactly is happening with, with settlements in the West Bank. It can be hard to discern exactly what's true. Many people, many journalists say that Palestinians are getting kicked out of their homes and the, the you know settlers are violently attacking them in some cases. People on the other side will say, you know, something like 90 something percent of the settlement expansion you hear about is actually upward expansion on already existing settlements rather than horizontal expansion that's displacing Palestinians. What is your perception of what is true currently and 
how do you view the ethics of settlement expansion? Well, I've always been against the settlement um, enterprise. I think it's counterproductive. It's not going to get what it wants. In other words, the idea of the settlements was to assure Israel's security. And for those who want to expand Israel down to the Jordan River to expand Israel's borders. I don't think both things are realistic any longer. On the other hand, the settlers, the settlements are expanding both horizontally and vertically. And a lot of settlers are right-wing fanatics. Not a lot. Some of the settlers are right-wing fanatics and they are violent towards their Palestinian neighbors, cut down olive trees, attack Palestinian olive pickers. This is a not a matter for dispute. This is what is happening in the, in the, on the ground in various areas of the West Bank. The settlements are a, a terrible impediment to peace. Uh, this is, has been true ever since the, the enterprise began. If you were a young Israeli today, would you, would you also refuse to serve in the occupied territory? Would you do that again? Probably, yeah. Okay, my final question for you. I want to end on an optimistic note, but it may or may not be an optimistic note, depending how you answer it. Say it's the year 2100. Probably both you and I will, will not be alive. And there is peace between Israel and Palestinians. Reverse engineer this for me. What is the plausible path? What was done in the intervening 80 years that made this unlikely peace possible? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, I think what Israel did in 67 after winning the war was a mistake. They should have immediately withdrawn from the West Bank and allowed the Jordanians to reoccupy and uh, rule the West Bank. Uh, this might have made a historic difference in the evolution of the conflict since 67. Uh, beyond that, I'm not sure. There are people who've criticized Israel's leadership in 48, myself included, for not being generous post-48 and 49, for example, and not being generous enough in offering um, concessions to the Arabs in order to make peace. But in hindsight, I think that uh, 49, in 1949, nothing really could have changed because the Arabs weren't ready after the their humiliating defeat in the war to make peace with the Jewish state. So nothing could have really changed, I think. I don't know what else could have been done. But in 67, that was the point at which something different could have been done and changed the course of history. My, My question, though, is sort of asking you to speculate about an optimistic future. This is uh, obviously... I have no... Uh, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic about the future. Mm. So I don't see the point in speculating about it because I don't see anything good happening here in the future. Fair enough. So before I let you go, can you tell my audience where to find your work, which, which books of yours you would recommend as an entry point to your work and where they can follow you? Well, I don't know. I think, uh, I think my book, Righteous Victims, which you can get easily on Amazon, Righteous Victims is a history of the Israeli-Arab conflict. I think it's a fairly reasonable, balanced history of what happened here since 1881 until the year 2000, but essentially most of the conflict. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonably good book. And um, I think uh, my book on 1948, which is called 1948, about the most important of the Israeli-Arab wars, a history of that war is also a reasonably good uh, history of the war. Those two, I think I would recommend. Okay, Benny Morris, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. 
If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.